welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm the host, Alan Sanders, and also joining me is Walt Murray. Walt, how are you? I am good, buddy. How's it going? Great. I can't believe we're already on minute four of this flick, and I, there's so much to go, but I've just been really, I'm really enjoying diving into this, uh, to this classic. I am too, and I feel like I'm getting a good insight into military life. Well, at least to what it is to be part of the, uh, the Air Transport Command. Uh, yes, which um, you would think would be a pretty tight ship, but I guess at the end of World War II, was, <laughs> it was just about moving guys home. Well, I guess, and at this point, obviously busy because so many people being released, so many people trying to get back to the States and wherever we are, they don't tell us what city kind of at the beginning, but it must be a hub to go to a lot of other places. I mean, you mentioned a couple of episodes back how the airline, the, 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 the private industry airline showed a map of the U.S. with sort of joining points. Don't know if it really reflected where we were, but you got the sense that they were at a hub for, for a lot of different airlines. Uh, yeah, yeah, you do get that sense. And uh, one thing I was thinking about last night after we got done recording was, from a logistics standpoint, the the military was and the government was expecting us to wrap the war up in Europe. It was no secret that the Nazis were being beaten and, and everything. But the war against Japan ended really suddenly when we dropped the bombs. So they were really not prepared to bring everybody home that quickly. So I bet from a logistics standpoint, it was kind of crazy trying to get everybody, you know, rounded up, moved in the right direction and get them to where they need to be. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned about a million people in the Pacific yesterday. I did a little look um, as far as individual service people that wasn't including support, logistics, the people who were actually uh, assigned for combat. It was about 285,000 troops. So then you add to that, you know, folks on the ships, folks who were supporting the supply chain, um, you know, the bases along the way, all along the Pacific where they had nurses, they had doctors, they had places for refueling. They had, you know, I mean, the whole Baba Black Sheep was the whole idea about being on an island and doing all these different missions out in the Pacific and all the personnel that would go along to support the actual uh, folks on the front line. And we literally built hospitals and airports and bases oh, yeah. all over the Pacific that are that were immediately abandoned. You know, one of my early favorite John Wayne movies was The Fighting Seabees. Oh, great movie. I had no idea that this I you know this notion of they 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 brought a bunch of folks that knew construction to be part of, you know, hey, as we move along, but these guys weren't trained initially in combat techniques and uh, John Wayne's character is like, look, we need to be able to defend ourselves if we're b- out there, you know, bulldozing and making runways and building things. And the idea of the Seabees were born, the construction battalion. Yeah. And pretty much if you see a, the name of a town or a city in one of these movies that sounds like an American or Western name, it was probably something where it was jungle in 1935. And then in 1942, a tractor or a bulldozer came in, started knocking stuff down a building. You know, it, it it happened that quickly that the Americans had to build bases and everything else. So um, it, it is really amazing to think of what we were able to do in that short a period of time. Mm. 
Now, when we last left, our uh, character, main character that we've been introduced initially, Fred Derry, Captain Derry, uh, was uh, standing up or coming up to the desk waiting to chat. And we had a corporal who was being told, well, we've got a flight to, uh, to Detroit. Uh, we're looking for a flight to Detroit, but he's got a flight to Cleveland available. Uh, so we'll start off at the minute where the desk sergeant continues saying, and then the corporal sort of looking over. It's time going to Cleveland. And Fred says to him, well, that's a nice town. He goes, yeah, but Detroit's where I live. <laughs> and so it kind of already sets the stage where now here's a guy that initially was at the airport, you know, our captain here didn't have a, the ability to get home in a timely manner, was told to go all the way across the tarmac, find this little shack, and now he's hearing the very first thing is, oh, one of the guys that you know wants to go home too isn't getting ready to go straight there either. So it almost sets, this, sets us up for failure again. Uh, yeah, it sure does. It sure does. And uh, one of the things too that, that I find interesting here is there is no deference to the officer that the sergeant doesn't say, okay, well, let me try to get you worked out first or anything else it's just hey whoever's there that's who i'm working with yeah yeah the he he recognized the rank but i don't know that it mattered it was first in first out right right so it is a really interesting scene mm -hmm. well fred turns to the sergeant is like hey sarge what's the chances of a ride to boone city and i love this like little exchange back and forth sarge what's the chances of a ride to boone city you got orders? Sure. Okay. I haven't got anything right now, but if you want to fill this out, I'll call you if anything comes up. You got orders? In other words, hey, this isn't a commercial airline. This is for folks who are supposed to be shipping somewhere based on military orders. So he goes to like, yeah, sure, tapping his pocket. And the guy's like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. And I'm sure it was just... He had to ask, you know, it's kind of like the olden days with uh, when bars would not really check your ID and, <laughs> you know, you'd walk up and show them your library card and they're like, yeah, 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 go on in. And so you had all those 18 year olds going to the bar. This is kind of the same thing. He's like, do you have orders? And he's like, yeah, sure. Doesn't even show it to him. He's like, all right, cool. You're good. Well, th this is typical military right here. I will, uh, from my background and my experience, and I think this still carries on to, to this day. The sergeant who's responsible for asking for orders, he can legitimately tell his next in command, hey, how'd that guy get on the plane? Did he have orders? He goes, well, I asked if he had orders and he pointed to his pocket. I just figured, you know, I wasn't going to question an officer. Right. It gives him that sort of CYA. That's right. And you sort of get that mode of cover your ass in the military of always like, okay, I'm bending the rules, but I'm going to do it in such a way that I still cover my own butt. Right. Right. And... This guy's got a pretty cush job, so he definitely does not want to screw that up. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's basically a booking agent. I mean, his job is to kind of keep track of the flights in and out and make sure whatever cargo or personnel are moving in and out. And if there's someone that can hitch a ride along the way, well, that's just gravy for the people that are wanting the ride. For him, his job is just to kind of make sure the flights are moving back and forth. Right. And he, uh, he's, he's got his hands full, but it's sure better than being out in the Pacific fighting, you know, uh, oh, yeah, Japanese this is a stateside desk job. Yeah, this is, this is pretty good stuff. Um, so Fred, you know, uh, the, the sergeant says, okay, I haven't got anything right now, but if you want to fill this out, I'll call you if anything comes up. And Fred says, okay, I guess I'll wait, right? Realizing, I mean, what's he going to do? Go back to the commercial side, go back to the civilian end, the private airline, and 
wait till the 19th, figures, well, what the heck, I might as well just fill it out and see what happens. So I guess rather than spend time showing you know, him filling out this form, um, as he goes to do it, we get a dissolve, and the camera's now kind of more in the middle of the room, almost like eye level with everybody else sort of just sitting in the middle of the room. And we get a shot of the, of the captain kind of coming in from the side and, and going into the room in front of the camera. And as he slowly makes his way over to one side, we've got another guy, a sergeant, who uh, is looking at this really weird, I don't know what this is. It looks like a, a sign card, like the old-fashioned sandwich board, but it's got some kind of mechanical-looking device hanging from it. And based on the framing, there's a dude's head. It looks like he's right in the middle of this board. <laughs> yeah, the ghost head. <laughs> yeah, it's just floating right there because he's up against the back wall under, underneath the uh, the board where they've got you know the destinations of what's coming in, what's going out. But it's really weird because this little U-shaped, I don't know, pipe or something underneath this trifold uh, or, or sandwich card, I don't know what you want to call it. Um, his head is like right in between, framed perfectly. Uh, that is really funny. I wonder if they meant to do that. It almost looks like he's like a really small person dangling underneath the side. Yeah, <laughs> right. He's a part of whatever's hanging there. Yeah. So, and I, and I'm no mechanic, but I have no idea what that is. I've been around some airplanes and things like that, but I have no idea what that part is. Yeah, it almost looks like it's some kind of an intake or some part of. It's obviously looks like some engine part, but. The fact that it's just sitting there, I'm wondering, are we supposed to assume, because remember with the Air Transport Command, one of the things is to move cargo, so maybe it's a part for something needed at another base, and it's just shipped that way. Like, that's its shipping frame. Yeah, it could be. Could be. So it's just kind of like dangling, like it's it's suspended, I guess. If you look, there's like it looks like where the crossbar goes across, yep. and I can't really make out the lettering. But it almost looks like some of the mechanics of the part is above that crossbar. Yeah, it's almost like it's hooked in up there and it goes by so fast it's hard to tell what it is. Yeah, I'm wondering, maybe that's what it is. That is like, here's all these guys sitting in the middle of this room and there's a, you know, some, a delivery <laughs> that needs to go to a, one of the bases somewhere in the United States. And who knows, maybe one of the guys is going to tag along with that part. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Well, and, you know, you, if you're going wherever it's going, you, you know, you don't care. You just went on the plane. Well, and you even have uh, the guy says, hey, you guys, I need a couple of men here to give me a hand to get this out to a plane. So I'm, I'm just going to go with it. Some something that they're, they're transporting. It's some kind of cargo. Yeah. And I wonder if it didn't just stuff they stuck together that looks mechanical and they shoved it on this uh, little tripod and moving it on out of there. But because it, it doesn't look any, like anything. Now, one of the viewers is going to be like, look, you idiots, here's what it is. How do you not know this? Right. Well, back in 1943, the DC-4 would have used this as an intake. I'm like, I don't Look, Jim O'Kane, I'm not you, okay? If you, wanted, if you wanted that kind of detail, you should have invited yourself in this episode. And you should have put it in the notes. You could have, you could have very easily said, hey, guys, in episode four, I need to join you to explain what that part is. Well, he... He may have made the uh, the big mistake of thinking we were smart enough to know. <laughs> well, he did know I was ex-military, but you know what? I'm not a mechanic. I was in the intel community, so we didn't actually work all that much. <laughs> we sat right. down and did a lot of listening. <laughs> did, did our best to figure out how to get other people to do the manual labor. I can see that. Um, what I do think is interesting is we don't really sense yet 
that this uh, shot on the guy in the naval peacoat and his uh, Dixie cup sitting there with his hands in his pocket, we don't quite know yet that he's going to become a a prominent figure. Uh, but for our our folks, you know, listening maybe in and they've seen the movie so many times and they know who we're talking about. Um, that's the actor uh, who um, you know is going to be really recognized for his work in this film. As the sergeant kind of taps a couple of the guys and you start seeing folks get up and you hear somebody say, I bet this thing weighs a ton. Uh, one of the guys then kind of looks over at the sailor just sitting there and he's kind of got that look of like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to be able to help much. Uh, <laughs> and the guy actually, you know, looks at him. And goes, What's the matter, sailor? Tired or something? Does it kind of with that sort of sarcastic, which makes me believe that this sailor has been sitting here for a while and I think this is a little bit of a well we know who he is because you and i've done our research so i don't want to spoil it for folks who are maybe watching the movie and, and listening along one minute at a time but there is something about why we have kind of a shot on this sailor and he's he refuses or at least at the scene doesn't take his hands out of his pockets right keep your eyes on this guy yeah i don't want to give anything away i'll just say he's kind of got that look of like all right i know you're kind of being a jackass but you have no idea why I can't help. Right. And of course, we, the audience, don't know why he doesn't get up to help. That, that's right. And I'm sure everybody's been around the guy in the military uh, who is the kind of the bomb or the sad sack who tries to get out of every detail. So I'm sure that's what they were assuming about him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, because if you don't jump, jump to, then you're obviously that guy's being waited. You're is waiting to be told what to do. And we all know those kind of types. They just get on our nerves like, well, I wasn't ordered. I'm just sitting here until someone tells me to do something. Yep. Yeah, I got to love those guys. <laughs> um, you do get this uh, passing shot as the uh, the thing is moving across. The, the This frame is moving out. And we do get sort of a, a, a I don't want to call it necessarily a push in, but it really does kind of hang on the character here of of the, the sailor while everybody uh is moving our captain you know grabs the uh the empty chair kind of observing all the enlisted make that move as the camera pushes into our sailor and they kind of exchange kind of a look but they never really they never really interact beyond that as the captain sort of leans back uh i want you to notice something when the captain leans back and decides he's going to put his foot on the inner wall of the bookcase he's let's see maybe one, two shelves up um, on this, what's looks like it has one, two, three, four. It looks like it has five shelves, this bookshelf. So he's kind of midway up the bookshelf. Right. The sailor closes his eyes, kind of settles back in. Our captain sort of says, all right, I'm going to try to settle in, take a nap until they find something. The next dissolve, I don't know how much time has passed, but look at where our captain's feet in. I know. It, they are completely up at the top, both of them. I mean, this dude's got both feet in the very top corner of the bookshelf, and he is as comfortable. Like, he's a complete L laying back against the wall. And how is that chair not sliding across the floor? There's no way I, that that wouldn't <laughs> fall. I, I don't know. Maybe uh, he's got rubber stoppers or something. But, yeah, he is, I mean, he is, he's all jacked up hanging up against the wall, which actually is going to be kind of funny um, in a second here because... I don't know how much time has passed, but the sailor is still sitting there. He's acting asleep. Uh, we now have in this shot in the foreground, there is a female character. We see just her back and she's talking to a sailor. And so I don't know, you know what the, the situation is there, but she wasn't in the shots before. So 
you know, there's a new character. Definitely some kind of time has passed. Uh, who knows? An hour, two hours, but um, it's definitely been, a, been a, a, a long nap time. So would she be a whack or does she look like a actual military member? I don't, I can't tell from the, the backside here. It almost looks like she would be wearing like a nurse's hat, but it, I yeah. don't know if those are nurses color. I wonder if she's USO. Oh, maybe, maybe could be, you know, there to just provide uh, assistance or, you know, coffee uh, and yeah. cupcakes or whatever. Yeah. There to kind of wait on the soldiers or see what they can do to make it their, their weight more comfortable. Right. Um, we do get the, the sergeant, though, starts off right off at, of, after this dissolve. Derry! Derry! Captain Fred Derry! Oh, and he starts yelling, he goes, Derry? Captain Derry? And then we get this funny where the captain kind of tries to lean forward and his angle, obviously, with his feet up that high, um, it's sort of like he comes crashing down and almost like a, a mini pratfall. You know, he he catches himself, his hat slides off his head, yes. and he kind of stumps forward like he's being slingshotted out of the chair. Yeah, pretty good. Um, odd, odd humor for what we've seen in this movie so far. Yeah, just a little bit of, uh, it's quirky. It's not it's not too stupid, but right. just enough to go, okay, this guy, <laughs> he's catching himself in a weird little fall. He's probably... You know how when you've fallen asleep in a strange place and in a strange position, all of a sudden you realize they're calling your name and like everything goes like a little, like it's weird. You feel the world, you're not in the right spot. <laughs> He's just trying not to. Oh yeah, definitely. It's a, I guess it's a little, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Very disorienting. Uh, trying to figure out where he is. Right. Right. So you definitely don't get the sense that Fred is pretentious as an officer. He, um, he really lets his hair down. He is, you know, not necessarily one of the guys, but he isn't expecting any real favoritism or anything. No, and he's not demanding it either. He's not being that kind of officer that even where he feels like maybe he's being slighted, um, he's he's not, you know, demanding that, hey, do you know who I am? You're supposed to salute me. I'm the officer. He doesn't play that. At least we haven't seen that anywhere in these first minutes. Yeah, no, definitely not yet. No. He seems kind of a, a likable guy. It comes across that way. Yeah. And he seems tired. You know, he, he has the sense, you get the sense of, I'm done. I'm just ready to go home. Just get this over with and, and get me on my way. Yeah. Not willing to make a scene. Um, he's, he's a good guy. He's, he's an officer yeah. that's probably, you know, in his mind, and I guess this is kind of like how I am at this point in my life even, when you've gone through enough adversity, you've got a couple of ways you can look at life afterwards. All the things that you think are now troublesome are so small and pale in significance, it doesn't bother you, or you become one of those just bitter at the world people and everything triggers you. He seems to be the former. He's one of those guys that's like, look, I've seen combat. If the worst thing that happens to me today is I have to sit here and wait for a flight, I'll wait for a flight. Yeah, and, and to the realization and the recognition that everybody in that room has been down that road. You know, I, I'm not special here. Everybody has been at the tip of the spear. Yeah. And, and I appreciate those kinds of individuals a lot more than the ones that decide, all right, I've been through all of this. I'm going to be a jerk everywhere I go because I, can, I, because I just can. Right. Right. It's kind of, I always go back to um, 
uh, the Clint Eastwood movie that we just did with the um, with the Marine Corps Minute guys. Uh, oh, Heartbreak Ridge. Heartbreak Ridge. The the captain in that movie, captain or major, is that guy. You know, if you walk in, if he walks into Shoney's and you're a military guy, he wants you to snap too. Right, right. Yeah, uh, the guy it, who, by the book, thinks he understands combat because he's a major and he's been in charge of logistics his whole career. Exactly right. <laughs> yep. And later, I love that scene in the end. I mean, I will say that is one of my favorite lines. He's like, you good at it? Well, stick to it. <laughs> yep. Like, That's a great line. You're not good at combat. <laughs> yeah, and I really... You know, kind of juxtaposed to that at the end of Band of Brothers or kind of towards the end, um, the lieutenant who had been so hard on them uh, in training and then who did not deploy with them goes walking by. And one of the guys that he had trained who had worked his way up to and been promoted up to major is sitting in his Jeep and the lieutenant walks by and doesn't salute him. And he stops him and he says, Lieutenant, you uh, you salute the rank not the man. And uh, I kind of think, uh, yeah, I mean, in that case, you want to show it mm-hmm. out for him, but he, but he had never done that any other time during that whole show. So he had always respected the guys who served under him, who he had kind of grown up with, but the one guy who really needed to be put in his place, he was willing to be right. To put and in that's his the place. difference between being a, a 24 seven jerk or knowing the right time to use that sort of tactical position of my rank is outranking you, and I'm going to be I'm I'm going to use it now to show to, to teach you a lesson. That's right. Well, we don't get to see what he's calling our uh, Fred Derry to the ke- to the to the desk for. Obviously, uh, Fred's hoping it's good news. So uh, we end the minute with him still in mid stumble. He does at one point grab the uh, arm of the chair where the sailor was asleep. Uh, doesn't seem like the sailor, at least when this when the minute ends, is uh, awoken by that jostling. But at the very at, at the very you know, last frame here, he's still kind of stumbling forward into the room to head to the desk. Yes, he is. So based on that, um, I know this was maybe a little bit shorter, but is there anything else you want to cover in this minute that we might have missed? No, I think we've covered it pretty well. I, I think the only other observation I made was that he's wearing cowboy boots and not military boots when he props his foot up on the bookshelf. But uh, other than that, um, no, I, I think we've covered it pretty well. I don't know if they're, are they cowboy boots? I know there's some kind of a uh, ankle boot, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, they're kind of shiny and it looks like they go all the way yeah, up. Yeah, because when you saw them, they were officer type, you know, shoes. And I wonder if that's just part of the flight uniform. That's a good point. I don't know if the flight jockeys, people who were assigned to air command or anything like this might've had like dress flight boots for their class A's versus shoes. They may have. I can absolutely say I have no idea what their uniform <laughs> was, uh, was, was specified as. Yeah. You know, I can't read. I'll say one thing here. I can't read really all of the writing on the posters. If it was like what on, on a bigger screen, I'm just looking at my monitor, but every military location I have ever been in, in my entire life, even when I was a kid going with my dad to the military bases, all the rooms, the hallways, there was always some kind of propaganda or uh, you know, just some kind of marketing about, hey, make sure you're cleaning up, or hey, don't forget the war effort, or loose lips sink ships. Uh, I was going to say that loose lips sink ships. I remember that. Every military base I've ever been on, I've seen that one. Yeah, it's just always sort of like those constant reminders of you know, 
just because you're in a base and you're outside of uh, your your day training, you never know who's around you, and you should always maintain your discipline. Absolutely. So I I thought as far as a nice touch, I, and you know I was gonna I was gonna get into this with costumes, uh, but we I don't know if we're gonna ever see many of the civilians. So I'm gonna drop this note here, and so all the groups that follow us, I'm sure some of them are gonna touch on it once we get to civilian life. But if you look at the decoration inside this room, the director really wanted it to feel like it was real life, not a Hollywood version of real life or sort of the bigger than life. And so they purposely used off the rack clothes. They used uh, store-bought props as much as they could. And the crew, as much as they could find, almost everyone that worked on the film had either served or done something in the military or in World War II because the director wanted to have an authentic feel from everyone putting this picture together. Yeah, and it really does, even for somebody like me who is not a military person, it is very convincing that this is a military operation. Yeah, yeah. So keep an eye on that for, not just because we only get the scenes where these the military folks are still transitioning back to home life, but with the movie that we're going to get back into each of the civilian lives, it was very much about making sure everyone looked like ordinary, pedestrian, civilian. They didn't want it to look Hollywood. They didn't want it to look glamorous or bigger than life. They wanted everyone to look like they just were shopping at your local, wait, back then, like Montgomery Ward or you know your local Five and Dime. They weren't going to some Hollywood boutique. Well, the other thing, too, that I think they did a great job with when you see a lot of those movies where at the beginning they're shipping out, the guys are much more, you know, kind of straight laced. They're buttoned up. They're tight. They're in um, perfect uniform and they are very military. And then this on the other side kind of gives you the sense of these are the guys who've been there and done that. They're wrapping up their time in the military they're kind of done and you know, they're not buttoned up. Their ties are loose. They're um, laying around on the floor. Uh, They're not in that, that gung ho military uh, feeling that you would get if we were seeing them go off to war. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Uh, They've got the sense of being much, a little bit more disheveled than you would have expected if they were shipping out. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, before we uh, close this one out, uh, you and I are part of a podcast called The Wilder Ride. And before we leave on how you can learn more about this podcast, where can people learn a little bit more about ours? If you want to learn about ours, probably the best place to go is our website, which is thewilderride.com. And from our website, you can uh, find all of our old episodes, our uh, former guests, guests to come when we have that available, uh, some of the interviews that we've done with a couple of the celebrities who've been in the movies we've covered, and a whole bevy of other things that you'll want to check out. It'll also take you to our social media, and I would highlight our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thewilderride, and from there you want to follow us, and then join the listeners group that comes right behind that. You'll have a couple questions to answer just to make sure you're not some internet robot trying to get in. And uh, that is all entertainment, no politics, no nonsense, just good fun. And speaking of listeners groups, this podcast, the Best Minute podcast, looking at the movie The Best Years of Our Lives, has a listeners group as well. If you do a search for Butch's Place, The Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe, 
You can join that and be part of the conversation here as we continue through this film all through 2021 as different groups come on and talk about things. If we miss something, we got something wrong, or you know what that part was dangling from that uh, that sort of framed sandwich board looking uh, device that they had to pull out of the room. Hey, let us know and we'll engage with you as well. You can also follow on Twitter, The Best Minutes. That's at The Best Minutes on Twitter. And the website is thebestminutes.com. And come on back tomorrow, Friday, as we close out the week. We've got another episode as we continue to break down the Academy Award-winning flick, The Best Years of Our Lives. And I tell you what, I've been in some of these rooms where I'm just like, I just hope nobody tries to make me salute. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I don't need Frank Burns imagine. telling me what to do at this point. Well, I hope one of the listeners will understand what that part is, because it's a pretty interesting-looking piece of equipment. I'm thinking it's going to be Jim O'Kane. He's like, guys, guys, dummies. What's wrong with you? Dummies? Well, well he'd be right. Yes, he would. So, Hey, Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor. Well, hey, and welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast, where each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wire... <laughs> can't believe I can't say his fucking <laughs> name every time I stumble. All right. <laughs> Where each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm your host, Alan Sanders, and joining me is always... God, why do I do that? I, you don't, I don't need to introduce you. It's not our podcast. You know what? I'm starting from the beginning. Okay. <laughs> it's just making more work for myself. Okay, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, I don't know what happened. Zoom just crashed on me. Oh, so you've been gone this whole time and I've been talking to myself? No, for about 10 seconds. Okay. Oh, good. I'm glad we're having trouble. Yeah, that's awesome.